Chapter Four of The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, in which Barry takes a near view of military glory. I never had a taste for anything but genteel company, and hate all descriptions of low life. Hence my account of the society in which I at present found myself must of necessity be short, and, indeed, the recollection of it is profoundly disagreeable to me. Pah! The reminiscences of the horrid black hole of a place in which we soldiers were confined, of the wretched creatures with whom I was now forced to keep company, of the ploughmen, poachers, pickpockets who had taken refuge from poverty or the law as in truth i had done myself is enough to make me ashamed even now and it calls the blush into my old cheeks to think i was ever forced to keep such company i should have fallen into despair but that luckily events occurred to rouse my spirits and in some measure to console me for my misfortunes the first of these consolations I had was a good quarrel, which took place on the day after my entrance into the transport ship, with a huge red-haired monster of a fellow, a chairman, who had enlisted to fly from a vixen of a wife who, boxer as he was, had been more than a match for him. As soon as this fellow, Tool, I remember was his name, got away from the arms of the washerwoman his lady, his natural courage and ferocity returned, and he became the tyrant of all round about him. All recruits, especially, were the object of the brute's insult and ill-treatment. I had no money, as I said, and was sitting very disconsolately over a platter of rancid bacon and mouldy biscuit which was served to us at mess, when it came to my turn to be helped to drink, and I was served like the rest, with a dirty tin noggin, containing somewhat more than half a pint of rum and water. The beaker was so greasy and filthy that I could not help turning round to the messman and saying, Fellow, get me a glass! At which all the wretches round about me burst into a roar of laughter, the very loudest among them being, of course, Mr. Toole. Get that gentleman a towel for his hands, and serve him a basin of turtle soup, roared the monster, who was sitting or rather squatting, on the deck opposite me. And as he spoke he suddenly seized my beaker of grog and emptied it in the midst of another burst of applause. If you want to vex him, ax him about his wife, the washerwoman, who baits him. Here whispered in my ear another worthy, a retired link-boy who, disgusted with his profession, had adopted the military life. Is it a towel of your wife's washing, Mr. Toole? said I. I'm told she wiped your face often with one. Ask him why you wouldn't see her yesterday when she came to the ship, continued the link boy. And so I put to him some other foolish jokes about soap suds, henpecking, and flat irons, which set the man into a fury and succeeded in raising a quarrel between us. We should have fallen to at once, but a couple of grinning marines, who kept watch at the door for fear we should repent of our bargain and have a fancy to escape, came forward and interposed between us with fixed bayonets. 
but the sergeant coming down the ladder and hearing the dispute condescended to say that we might fight it out like men with fists if we chose and that the foredeck should be free to us for that purpose but the use of fistas as the englishmen called them was not then general in ireland and it was agreed that we should have a pair of cudgels with one of which weapons i finished the fellow in four minutes giving him a thump across his stupid sconce which laid him lifeless on the deck and not receiving myself a single hurt of consequence this victory over the cock of the vile dunhill obtained me respect among the wretches of whom i formed part and served to set up my spirits which otherwise were flagging and my position was speedily made more bearable by the arrival on board our ship of an old friend this was no other than my second in the fatal duel which had sent me thus early out into the world captain fagin there was a young nobleman who had a company in our regiment gale's foot and who preferring the delights of the mal and the clubs to the dangers of a rough campaign had given fagin the opportunity of an exchange which as the latter had no fortune but his sword he was glad to make the sergeant was putting us through our exercise on deck the seamen and officers of the transport looking grinning on when a boat came from the shore bringing our captain to the ship and though i started and blushed red as he recognized me a descendant of the berries in this degrading posture i promise you that the sight of fagin's face was most welcome to me for it assured me that a friend was near me before that i was so melancholy that i would certainly have deserted had i found the means and had not the inevitable marines kept a watch to prevent any such escapes fagin gave me a wink of recognition but offered no public token of acquaintance it was not until two days afterwards and when we had bidden adieu to old ireland and were standing out to sea that he called me into his cabin and then shaking hands with me cordially gave me news which i much wanted of my family i had news of you in dublin he said faith you've begun early like your father's son and i think you could not do better than as you have done but why did you not write home to your poor mother she has sent half a dozen letters to you at dublin i said i had asked for letters at the post office but there were none for mr redmond i did not like to add that i had been ashamed after the first week to write to my mother we must write to her by the pilot said he who will leave us in two hours and you can tell her that you are safe and married to brown bess i sighed when he talked about being married on which he said with a laugh i see you're thinking of a certain young lady at brady's town is miss brady well said i and indeed could hardly utter it for i certainly was thinking about her for though i had forgotten her in the gaieties of dublin i have always found adversity makes men very affectionate there's only seven miss brady's now answered fagin in a solemn voice poor nora good heavens what of her i thought grief had killed her oh she took on so at your going away that she was obliged to console herself with a husband she's now mrs john quinn mrs john quinn was there another mr john quinn asked i quite wonder-stricken no 
the very same one my boy he recovered from his wound the ball you hit him with was not likely to hurt him it was only made of tow do you think the bradys would let you kill fifteen hundred a year out of the family and then fagin further told me that in order to get me out of the way for the cowardly englishman could never be brought to marry from fear of me the plan of the duel had been arranged but hit him you certainly did redmond and with a fine thick plugget of tow and the fellow was so frightened that he was an hour in coming too we told your mother the story afterwards and a pretty scene she made she dispatched a half-score of letters to dublin after you but i suppose addressed them to you in your real name by which you never thought to ask for them the coward said i though i confess my mind was considerably relieved at the thoughts of not having killed him and did the bradys of castle brady consent to admit a poltroon like that into one of the most ancient and honourable families in the world he's paid off your uncle's mortgage said fagin he gives nora a coach and six he is to sell out and lieutenant ulick brady of the militia is to purchase his company that coward of a fellow has been the making of your uncle's family faith the business was well done and then laughing he told me how mick and ulick had never let him out of their sight although he was for deserting to england until the marriage was completed and the happy couple off on their road to dublin are you in want of cash my boy continued the good-natured captain you may draw upon me for i got a couple of hundred out of master quinn for my share and while they last you shall never want and so he bade me sit down and write a letter to my mother which i did forthwith in very sincere and repentant terms stating that i had been guilty of extravagances that i had not known until that moment under what a fatal error i had been laboring and that i had embarked for germany as a volunteer the letter was scarcely finished when the pilot sang out that he was going on shore and he departed taking with him from many an anxious fellow besides myself our adieu to friends in old ireland although i was called captain barry for many years of my life and have been known as such by the first people of europe yet i may as well confess i had no more claim to the title than many a gentleman who assumes it and never had a right to an epaulette or to any military decoration higher than a corporal's stripe of worsted i was made corporal by fagin during our voyage to the elba and my rank was confirmed on terra firma i was promised a halberd too and afterwards perhaps an ensigncy if i distinguished myself but fate did not intend that i should remain long an english soldier as shall appear presently meanwhile our passage was very favourable my adventures were told by fagin to his brother officers who treated me with kindness and my victory over the big chairman procured me respect from my comrades of the foredeck encouraged and strongly exhorted by fagin i did my duty resolutely but though affable and good-humoured with the men i never at first condescended to associate with such low fellows and indeed was generally called amongst them my lord i believe it was the ex-link-boy a facetious knave who gave me the title and i felt that i should become such a rank 
as well as any peer in the kingdom. It would require a greater philosopher and historian than I am to explain the causes of the famous Seven Years' War in which Europe was engaged, and indeed its origin has always appeared to me to be so complicated and the books written about it so amazingly hard to understand that I have seldom been much wiser at the end of a chapter than at the beginning, and so shall not trouble my reader with any personal disquisitions concerning the matter. All I know is that after his majesty's love of his Hanoverian dominions had rendered him most unpopular in his English kingdom, with Mr. Pitt at the head of the anti-German war party, all of a sudden, Mr. Pitt becoming minister, the rest of the empire applauded the war as much as they had hated it before. The victories of Dettingen and Krefeld were in everybody's mouths, and the Protestant hero, as we used to call the godless old Frederick of Prussia, was adored by us as a saint. A very short time after we had been about to make war against him in alliance with the Empress Queen. Now, somehow, we were on Frederick's side. The Empress, the French, the Swedes, and the Russians were leagued against us, and I remember when the news of the Battle of Lisa came even to our remote quarter of Ireland, we considered it as a triumph for the cause of Protestantism, and illuminated and bonfired, and had a sermon at church, and kept the Prussian king's birthday, on which my uncle would get drunk, as indeed on any other occasion. Most of the low fellows enlisted with myself were, of course, papists. The English army was filled with such out of that never-failing country of ours. And these, forsooth, were fighting the battles of Protestantism with Frederick, who was belaboring the Protestant Swedes and the Protestant Saxons, as well as the Russians of the Greek Church and the Papist troops of the Emperor and the King of France. It was against these latter that the English auxiliaries were employed, and we know that, being the quarrel what it may, an Englishman and a Frenchman are pretty willing to make a fight of it. We landed at Coxhaven, and before I had been a month in the electorate, I was transformed into a tall and proper young soldier, and having a natural aptitude for military exercise, was soon as accomplished at the drill as the oldest sergeant in the regiment. It is well, however, to dream of glorious war in a snug armchair at home, I or to make it as an officer surrounded by gentlemen gorgeously dressed, and cheered by chances of promotion. But those chances do not shine on poor fellows in worsted lace. The rough texture of our red coats made me ashamed when I saw an officer go by. My soul used to shudder when, on going the rounds, I would hear their voices as they sat jovially over the mess-table. My pride revolted at being obliged to plaster my hair with flour and candle-grease, instead of using the proper pomatum for a gentleman. Yes, my tastes have always been high and fashionable, and I loathed the horrid company in which I was fallen. What chances had I of promotion? None of my relatives had money to buy me a commission, and I became soon so low-spirited that I longed for a general action and a ball to finish me, and vowed that I would take some opportunity to desert. When I think that I, the descendant of the kings of Ireland, was threatened with a caning by a young scoundrel who had just joined from Eton College, 
when i think that he offered to make me his footman and that i did not on either occasion murder him on the first occasion i burst into tears i do not care to own it and had serious thoughts of committing suicide so great was my mortification but my kind friend fagin came to my aid in the circumstance with some very timely consolation my poor boy said he you must not take the matter to heart so caning is only a relative disgrace young ensign fakenham was flogged himself at eton school only a month ago i would lay a wager that his scars are not yet healed you must cheer up my boy do your duty be a gentleman and no serious harm can fall on you and i heard afterwards that my champion had taken mr fakenham very severely to task for this threat and said to him that any such proceedings for the future he should consider as an insult to himself whereon the young ensign was for the moment civil as for the sergeants i told one of them that if any man struck me no matter who he might be or what the penalty i would take his life and faith there was an air of sincerity in my speech which convinced the whole bevy of them and as long as i remained in the english service no rattan was ever laid on the shoulders of redmond barry indeed i was in that savage moody state that my mind was quite made up to the point and i looked to hear my own dead march played as sure as i was alive when i was made a corporal some of my evils were lessened i messed with the sergeants by special favour and used to treat them to drink and lose money to the rascals at play with which cash my good friend mr fagin punctually supplied me our regiment which was quartered about stade and luneburg speedily got orders to march southward towards the rhine for news came that our great general prince ferdinand of brunswick had been defeated no not defeated but foiled in his attack upon the french under the duke of broglio at bergen near frankfurt on the Main, and had been obliged to fall back as the allies retreated the french rushed forward and made a bold push for the electorate of our gracious monarch in hanover threatening that they would occupy it as they had done before when d'estrée beat the hero of culloden the gallant duke of cumberland and caused him to sign the capitulation of klosterzaven an advance upon hanover always caused a great agitation in the royal bosom of the king of england more troops were sent to join us convoys of treasure were passed over to our forces and to our allies the king of prussia and although in spite of all assistance the army under prince ferdinand was very much weaker than that of the invading enemy yet we had the advantage of better supplies one of the greatest generals in the world and i was going to add of british valour but the less we say about that the better my lord george sackville did not exactly cover himself with laurels at minden otherwise there might have been won there one of the greatest victories of modern times throwing himself between the french and the interior of the electorate prince ferdinand wisely took possession of the free town of bremen which he made his storehouse and place of arms and round which he gathered all his troops making ready to fight the famous battle of minden were these memoirs not characterized by truth 
and did I deign to utter a single word for which my own personal experience did not give the fullest authority, I might easily make myself the hero of some strange and popular adventures. And, after the fashion of novel-writers, introduced my readers to the great characters of this remarkable time. These persons, I mean the romance-writers, if they take a drummer or a dustman for a hero, somehow manage to bring him in contact with the greatest lords and most notorious personages of the empire. And I warrant me there's not one of them but, in describing the Battle of Minden, would manage to bring Prince Ferdinand and my Lord George Sackville and my Lord Granby into presence. It would have been easy for me to have said I was present when the orders were brought to Lord George to charge with the cavalry and finish the rout of the Frenchman, and when he refused to do so and thereby spoiled the great victory. But the fact is I was two miles off from the cavalry when his lordship's fatal hesitation took place, and none of us soldiers of the line knew what had occurred until we came to talk about the fight over our kettles in the evening, and repose after the labors of a hard-fought day. I saw no one of higher rank that day than my colonel and a couple of orderly officers riding by in the smoke. No one on our side, that is. A poor corporal, as I then had the disgrace of being, is not generally invited into the company of commanders and the great. But, in revenge, I saw, I promise you, some very good company on the French part, for their regiments of Lorraine and Royal Cravat were charging us all day, and in that sort of melee high and low are pretty equally received. I hate bragging, but I cannot help saying that I made a very close acquaintance with the colonel of the cravats, for I drove my bayonet into his body, and finished off a poor little ensign so young, slender, and small, that a blow from my pigtail would have dispatched him, I think, in place of the butt of my musket with which I clubbed him down. I killed, besides, four more officers and men, and in the poor ensign's pocket found a purse of fourteen louis d'or, and a silver box of sugar-plums, of which the former present was very agreeable to me. If people would tell their stories of battle in this simple way, I think the cause of truth would not suffer by it. All I know of this famous fight of Minden, except from books, is told here above. The ensign's silver bonbon box and his purse of gold, the livid face of the poor fellow as he fell, the huzzas of the men of my company, as I went out under a smart fire and rifled him, their shouts and curses as we came hand in hand with the Frenchman. These are, in truth, not very dignified recollections, and had best be passed over briefly. When my kind friend Fagin was shot, a brother captain, and his very good friend, turned to Lieutenant Rawson and said, Fagin's down! Rawson, there's your company. It was all the epitaph my brave patron got. I should have left you a hundred guineas, Redmond, were his last words to me, but for a cursed run of ill luck last night at Pharaoh. And he gave me a faint squeeze of the hand. Then, as the word was given to advance, I left him. When we came back to our old ground, which we presently did, he was lying there still, but he was dead. Some of our people had already torn off his epaulets, 
and no doubt had rifled his purse. Such knaves and ruffians do men in war become. It is well for gentlemen to talk of the age of chivalry, but remember the starving brutes whom they lead. Men nursed in poverty, entirely ignorant, made to take a pride in deeds of blood. Men who can have no amusement but in drunkenness, debauch, and plunder. It is with these shocking instruments that your great warriors and kings have been doing their murderous work in the world. And while, for instance, we are at the present moment admiring the great Frederick, as we call him, and his philosophy, and his liberality, and his military genius, I, who have served him, and been, as it were, behind the scenes of which that great spectacle is composed, can only look at it with horror. What a number of items of human crime, misery, slavery, go to form that sum total of glory. I can recollect a certain day about three weeks after the Battle of Minden, and a farmhouse in which some of us entered, and how the old woman and her daughters served us trembling to wine, and how we got drunk over the wine, and the house was in a flame presently, and woe betide the wretched fellow afterwards who came home to look for his house and his children. End of chapter 4